Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and it is the 15th of November 2006. I'm trying to catch up with uh, a lot of stuff I hadn't finished before the snow hit and sure enough there was an early dump of snow. Right now it's thawing again and um, I'm up to my eyes and fixing things etc. Everything happens always when the winter starts. That's when everything breaks down. And so I've been, I've been very, very busy. This time of year is a time when they start hyping up the flu shots. Now they have the pneumonia shot as well. And maybe I should talk about this for a little while because in the last five years probably the flu shot has been hyped and promoted by different governments and they've done massive advertising campaigns on getting the, the flu shot. In Canada, it's free, basically. You're paying for it through your taxes. So it's not free at all. But it's amazing that at the beginning of winter, the barrage of advertising you hear uh, to get your flu shot. And come the spring, they give you the statistics of the people who've had the flu, and they also tell you that it didn't, that the shots didn't have any effect, basically. This is staggering. It's a repeat performance every single year, and they occasionally have programs in the spring, documentaries on all this pseudoscience. And they tell you, well, they can't really give, prevent the flu because under their own theories, you see, the virus is constantly mutating. And a, a virus is composed of strands of stolen DNA. This is the theories, you see, from every person that, that it's gone through. And it, it's, it's, it robs you of a piece of your DNA as it spreads. And it will also leave in you part of someone else's DNA from the last victim. But because it constantly mutates, um, and since it takes them a year or two years to make a vaccine, then they're always giving you the, a vaccine that's one or two years old for the previous flus. Therefore, they can't cover you for the mutated type that you're going to get this year. This is the, the mishmash of information this given to the public and, and general practitioners too. Uh, it's always fascinated me. It's been fascinating to watch doctors, generations of doctors, being turned out, each with different theories on, on things than the previous lot. And science never ever admits it's been wrong in anything. It simply comes out with a new theory or even an opposing theory, and that's taught as a new norm for a generation but they'll never ever admit that that must mean that the previous theory was wrong. Now, to encourage the public to get their shots, even though they'll be taken, the vaccine will be taken from a virus one or two years old, at least, they're telling you, well, maybe there'll be some crossover protection. This is a new term they're using, meaning if it's kind of similar to the virus, it'll give you a type of crossover protection, maybe. This is good science here. 
Last night on the CBC News, the Canadian News, a victim of a flu shot was on television. He came out, there's a new, see there's a new syndrome, there's so many new syndromes we come down with, you see, which just come out of the blue and they're so stunned by it. But they, they did warn us that, uh, oh, it may, be one, it may be one in a million will contact Guillain-Barr virus. Well, Guillain-Barr syndrome. They're not sure. In this day when they can clone us uh, from scratch, according to, to the sciences, and make a purpose-made human if they wanted to, and even give you a mole on your cheek if it suited them, they just can't tell if this Guillain-Barr syndrome is due to a virus or a bacterium, two different types of forms of life, you see. Really, the bacterium is a life form. Uh, so, so one in a million might. It might be one in a million. It could be one in five hundred. Maybe it's one in ten. Uh, if, if when you pick numbers out of the sky, why not? It's kind of like FDR said. He said, um, well, there are lies. Actually, it was Theo Roosevelt, you know, his predecessor, his old relative. Theo Roosevelt said, well, there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics meaning statistics are a better way of lying we, because we're brainwashed to believe the sciences. It's like a, a, a priestly utterance of truth, ultimate truth, we accept it. So they pick out these statistics out of thin air and bamboozle us with it. And uh, some people will come down with this, this disease. Now, this is only one type of disease you can get from the, from the inoculate or from the injection. And they had this poor guy on who who got this disease from a flu shot. Uh, how it contaminated the shots, they have no idea. Mind you, they won't tell you how they grow the viruses or the bacterium. And maybe it's better that you don't know them. We know how they did it with the polio vaccine. They, they, they used monkey kidneys to grow the, the potent stuff, you see. They poisoned us all with. So this old guy with this crippling disease became paralyzed and started with a, a, a cold, numb feeling in his toes and gradually spread up his legs and in his arms. And with it comes chronic fatigue, uh, a tremendous uh, uh, upsurge in chronic fatigue syndromes of all different fancy names. And going up proportionally with all the different injections we get in this day and age. That's the common denominator in all of this. Science has taken the place, and this happened after World War II. It's taken the place of religion, you see. It is a religion. Medicine and science are religions. If they were not based as much on faith as fact, they would be right all the time. We wouldn't have these mistakes we wouldn't have uh, theories which constantly change all the time. And we wouldn't be tossing old theories out the window. And after World War II, people had so much uh, sickness to do with religion and, and, and systems that those who came back wanted to believe in something else, something rational, because the wars had been completely irrational. 
the reasons for the wars, the movements that led up to the wars were irrational movements. They were mass movements. And, and maybe on the next program I'll go in to more of this because it's a fascinating field of study how an idea can, can grip whole populations and motivate them often towards their own or others' destruction and how that same principle of motivating mass behavior is still in use today because it is a science in itself, one of the real sciences that, that's very, very old. Times have changed And we often rewound the clock Since the Puritans got a shock When they landed on Plymouth Rock Shock as you try to stand. Instead of landing on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock would land on them. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. But now, Lord knows, anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use four letter words writing prose. Anything goes If driving fast cars you like If low bars you like If old hymns you like If bare limbs you like If May West you like Or me undressed you like Nobody will oppose When every night The set the smartest Indulging in nudist parties In studios Then anything goes But interestingly this poor guy who got this disease from his flu shot he says well I don't care he says, you might say it's one in a million he says but when you're the one in, in the million life sure as hell ain't no fun crippling now many people I know have come down with different kinds of problems after injections often booster injections it's as though the first one was a trigger and the booster sets it off. We live in a Malthusian world. For those who want to, to go into population control from the bigwigs themselves, you can start at least, it's not the first one, but you can start with Thomas Malthus with his essay on, on population because Malthus was an economist who worked not just for the British government and not for the first but for the first big corporations like the East India Company he talked to to um, governments of, of all European countries on how to keep the populations in check and he came out with, with fantastic graphs of, of how Europe was so overpopulated back in the 1700s and again by the use of these pseudoscience and, and graphs and things and he, he convinced them all that they'd have to reduce the populations because by, by, the, by the 100 years time we'd be crawling all, all over each other like ants and he proposed different methods of getting rid of mainly the poor and this is a, a part a big part of, of the old and the new 
eugenics program. It's the same ongoing thing. It's had many names. Now it's called bioethics. So it's much gentler and fuzzy and nice. But Malthus went through the usual spiel about the, the fittest have the right to survive. Again, all tied around the Darwinian period. And remember that Charles Darwin did not, was not the first one to write on this uh, fittest, uh, survival of the fittest. His grandfather actually put a book out long before him because they were all high Freemasons. <coughs> and he talked about putting the poor in England and other countries into special housing units which they would locate in unhealthy areas like swamplands where uh, the disease would breed. He also advocated the poor houses. Now the poor houses, in a typical dialectical fashion, um, to one group of people it would seem, well that's not so bad. They're putting up big buildings for the poor unfortunates who's who, the widows and, 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 and their children who've been left without a, a husband he's, he's died in the mills or whatever or he was worked to death in the mines so they put them in the workhouses where to the charitable mind and uh, those far removed from the situation they think well that's good, that's nice and that's charitable but Malthus had advocated the setup of these poor houses where they would be fed the worst kind and a minimal type of food and the, he even had it spaced down to the bed spacing which would be just rugs on the floor so many feet per, per apart enough for fleas kind typhus and other diseases to cross between one person and the next it was a place to kill off the poor and the average length of existence for a, a, a mother and children going in there for life expectancy was maybe five months. So there's your, your two sides of what sounds like a charitable organization done for other reasons completely. That's the kind of world that existed before and is far more sophisticated today. When we read Charles Galton and Darwin's books, the grandson of Charles the physicist who worked for Britain in the 1950s and who published his own book, The Next Million Years, he also, because you find in these family lines they have their own speciality, that's their job, and theirs was population and population management and control. And Charles Galton Darwin takes over and, and he, he goes through who is the fittest to survive, and he breaks it down. Who's fittest to survive? Is it the rich or is it the poor? And he said, well, it's the rich, especially when they can prove through generations that mainly their offspring have managed to hold on to their wealth. Some bad apples turn up, he says, but, but mainly they hold on to their property, to their power, their status, and their influence in society. Those are the fittest to survive. And then he goes and categorizes all the rest. And he comes up with quite innovative ideas on how to manage the rest of the people so they don't breed. Uh, one of the reasons was, uh, one of the, the things he came up with was to give them, to allow them to have credit. 
uh, then they could buy things and, and by by wanting material goods they wouldn't want children because uh, children consume money and it takes away from the material goods the toys and one of the examples he used was a, a, a car he called it a motor car as they do in Britain he says if they could all have a car and work towards a car well naturally it would be expensive they'd have to pay it up and they'd have to be at work, maybe male and female, because they wanted both out in the workplace. It, it also doubles the tax base. And they, they might not have time for children, which would consume money and they wouldn't have their car and, not, and all the other little luxuries they could dangle in front of us. So we live in a consumer society, not by chance. There are powerful factors behind the whole consumer pushing industry and creation industry to divert us from other things. And sure enough, uh, Charles Scott and Darwin's biggest fear at the time was that even that the wealthier people uh, were, were not breeding as much as they should be. And he was afraid that the lessers, you know, all the, the, what Plato would call the its, you know, the commoners, would overtake their betters, basically by breeding too much while the elite were breeding too few and he thought they should give incentives to the elite to breed it's kind of hard to imagine what incentives to give them because they're so wealthy to begin with but I'm sure there are some perks like maybe extended health maybe advanced medical the real stuff you know the real treatments for stuff the real cures and things perhaps and I'm not joking about that because even when the Rosicrucians first came out in the 1500s to let it be known they could, they could give life extension to the higher members who towed the line it's not far-fetched at all from professorship down is the lowest level of science in any of the scientific fields we can do so much today with never mind the nanotechnology if they've admitted they have nanotechnology they've had it for far far longer than you'd ever suspect because we were the last to know at the bottom cloning is the same they've had cloning long long before they were even teaching them in medical school that they'd actually found genes they always suspected they were there until Watson came along so where's all this ramble leading to it's leading to the fact that the reality that we are given and is pushed and promoted to us, often taught by useful idiots, people who, who believe themselves, they've been taught all there is to know. That's the best kind of, of useful idiot. Um, that's the lowest level of, of, of reality. There are much higher levels above that. And quite a few years ago, about the, 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 the mid to late 80s, an interesting little blurb came across the media in Canada and other countries at the same time. I noticed that politicians and their families would get treatment, special treatment at top military hospitals. And I wondered why that would be. Why couldn't they have the same kind of treatment that they'd shared amongst the people up until now? Why would that be? Well, the reason would be that they're getting treatments which are cures for certain things because I'm sure many of them themselves are contaminated with the various diseases 
that were given to us to, to degenerate us. As you can see with the statistics to do with all kinds of illnesses, uh, debilitating diseases, arthritis, and so on. Now we have juvenile arthritis escalating, and people under 30 coming down with crippling arthritis as well. We've all been affected in some way or another. When people are disabled from being fully healthy and functional, they don't make good marriage prospects, and therefore they don't breed. That's the purpose for it. For those who live in the TV world, glued to their 10 o'clock news or 11 o'clock news, it would be impossible for them to believe that that could be done in intentionally to them. And those same people will avoid, like the plague, shall we say, going into the books written by some of those who advocated methods of lowering the populations and disabling them as well. They don't really want to know. They want to be reassured of things just the way it's presented to us and that science is bamboozled why these little bugs they can, now they admit the same sciences will admit that are so that these same sciences that are so confused with all their different theories and to do with viruses and bacteria and how they mutate and all that kind of stuff and all these different theories that they pass their thesis on and etc etc and then change the theory again next year the same higher authorities will tell you, like the interviews he did at Port and Downs Bacterial Warfare Institute in England, that they, they can create viruses and bacterium, create them, and program them, basically, to reproduce so many times in a week so that it would, it would sweep across a country and then stop reproducing itself, like a miniature computer. And that was a write-up done in the early 90s in one of the British newspapers. And it was done by a reporter allowed in to the facilities to sit and talk to the scientists. They had ethnic-specific diseases too. So if they wanted to kill off anybody with, say, a Celtic gene or whatever, it would be done. And yet the same sciences taught at universities, again, professorship down, you see, the low-level stuff, are just so bamboozled about how to prevent or, or, or cure the common cold. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. We're living in fantasy land at the bottom of a ladder. Because in an age where they can literally boast and can clone and create any type of creature they want if they want to I mean Dolly the sheep is a joke that's for that's for the fear for the people Dolly is, is a Masonic term that's what they call Dolly the sheep Dolly the sheep Benjamin Franklin first used Dolly openly when he came back from France a Dolly is a conveyance a carrier of genes 
that's why you have a dolly and you wheel things along it's a carrier it's an in-house joke they're way beyond that way beyond that they can create any kind of life they want they can create and build particular bacterium and viruses but we just don't know how to stop these things and we don't know why people are getting sick from all the serums and so on this is nonsense it only makes sense when you realize that there are other agendas at work and at play and it's not all to do with money yeah the pharmaceutical industries are probably the greediest most ruthless companies on the planet definitely not what we call humane but there's lots of money to be gained from suffering but it's not the only reason and over 400 years ago when they talked about setting up big international corporations when they already had the British East India Company on the go and the Dutch East India Company who, who were really two sides of the same thing same company they knew they would rule the world you'd be surprised how many companies today are actually run by secret services or CIA they're front companies you could never in this day and age allow true competition on any cutting-edge technology to be in private hands if you want to retain power if you think that Bill Gates was a self-made man well keep buying the lotto maybe one day you'll get there too under all the, the hoopla you hear about Monopoly and Microsoft it's all it is is hoopla it's rather obvious to a thinking person that Gates was given a, a clear field to make sure that the one system was prevalent across the planet for a totally controlled society in a world society you couldn't have competition if you want to monitor everyone's moves what they're doing and talking about and thinking about you need one system it's the same with the digital angel and the chips and so on these corporations are real corporations but they're fronted for the big boys the CIA and so on Canada's history and the, and the Commonwealth countries the British Commonwealth countries have always had especially since World War II when many of them were set up crown corporations crown corporations are in a sort of no man's land between public and, and government owned there's a limited amount of shareholders apparently but even some of the big investigative television journalists who have tried to find out more about them and how they're set up are turned away they can't find out well that's because they really are working for the real governments of the world or government singular you can't share real power in a real competitive world and keep a hold of it at the same time as one or the other and that's why these things are set up they're not dummies as such dummy corporations they're real corporations but they work for a real governments at the top 
they don't work as free competition uh, in a free market. And they're heavily financed from the start to make sure that they predominate. That's the real world we live in. And they always give us the occasional supposed genius who just is a self-made man. That's utter nonsense because doors have to open to allow you in at the top. It's not a matter of having abilities or anything else or even having the money. It's will they allow you in or not. And if the doors are opened, then that means you've been picked and brought up to be their man. That's the real world we live in. Not the illusory one that you get in the movies. It's not the one that you're taught at school. You're trained at school just like racing dogs are. Racing dogs are all hyped up in their little cages. Up goes the, the, the fronts of the boxes. And uh, an electric bunny rabbit was flying round in a circle. And the dogs chase them. Well, we're trained to run after money and success at school. It's the only function we have to earn and uh, until you're about 30, you, then until you realize you're not going to get to the top of, of, and it doesn't work that way anyway, as far as ability goes. There's other, other factors to consider, and you're not taught these things at school. You're not supposed to know. You're supposed to be really optimistic and... Uh, and, and just go out and, like, and chase that bunny rabbit. What a shock you'd get if you bit into it, because it's electric. The, the real world is a closed shop at the top. Power does not share itself with its lessers, and there's been a power system in place for an awful, awful long time that does not tolerate any upstart coming in and trying to muscle in. It doesn't work that way in real life. They are ruthless, utterly ruthless, to keep this system in place. Now, how could they be so sure of the effects that they want to inflict upon populations? They don't just test on animals. They've been using prisoners in prisons for many, many decades for experimental purposes. They always pick the poorest of the poor, have no voice in society, and who need the money. Money makes this little world go round. Those that have it can dictate which direction it spins. One excellent book to read and there are quite a few out there, but one very good one is called Acres of Skin. That was written by Alan M. Hornblum, H-O-R-N-B-L-U-M. And it was published by Rutledge, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. -E. And it goes into the, the experiments in prisoners in Holmesburg Prison. And it's astonishing what they've gotten away with just in that one prison over many years. They're all at it, really. 
and <clears throat> the testing of psychedelic drugs, the testing of of drugs to make people impotent, um, inoculations of all kinds, and many of these people, of course, have died since or come down with tumors and all kinds of weird diseases from these supposedly innocent experiments under different, very innocent-sounding experimental names, such as testing sun creams or facial creams. They, they, had, they, had, they just took their word for it, face value, and had themselves, you know, basically made up like grids on their skin and uh, different patches and creams used, etc., or pills were given, or injections for all kinds of, of very innocent-sounding things, and but they all had to sign release forms that they could never come back on those who were giving them, or in, in charge of these experiments. They couldn't have any legal comeback on them. It, it's it's a it's fascinating to see what's been done on the public, mainly again on prisoners before it's used on the general populations. What are the worries of the elite? Before the Industrial Revolution, at the time, they knew they'd have to work up two industries and create cities like Manchester, Birmingham, that would be nothing but industrial cities slums, really, for the people. How would they get them into the cities? And we find that the Rothschilds had a big hand in England and in other parts of Europe. Remember, there were five sons. And part of their crest is a, a, an eagle holding five arrows in its right claw and the olive branch in the other they just added extra arrows for the U.S. flag. <clears throat> but the Rothschilds repealed the corn laws to allow the dumping in Britain of foreign crops. And this put all of the small farmers out of business and all their workers, the rural workers, and they moved in to where the work was starting to be born in the, in the industrial sites. They became hellholes. Benjamin Franklin, who was over there before the American Revolution, talks about them. The squalor, the poverty, the stunted growth of the people who were kept at just survival wages and no more. 16 hours a day you worked. That was called humane. And the elite had meetings. To, to see if, if that was enough time for them to work because they were afraid if they had any free time at all they'd get up to mischief they might complain and, and goodness knows what they'd do that was the biggest fear of the elite at the time was, was not uh, could they give them free time to the public and that's why on Sundays when eventually they gave them the Sunday off it was almost mandatory to attend church and then contemplate God all the time and see how sinful you were. That way you, you would keep out of mischief. That was their answer to it. So the church, all churches, all denominations of churches were hand in glove with 
the governments and the elite and aristocracy. During the 1800s, they knew at the speed of automation of machines, even then, they'd arrive at a period where less and less workers would be necessary. And we see, again, once the Rothschilds took over the Bank of England and got the standing army on the go, you see that was part of the whole deal, the red coats. Yet war after war after continuous wars. That's why Napoleon called England perfidious England, because they make an ally with someone, and once the war was over, they turn on that ally and unite with someone else against them. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that's why George Orwell talked about the wars with East Asia, West Asia, uh, who are we fighting today? Is it East Asia or West Asia? Because they kept changing sides with their allies. This is a constant technique which they use. And they knew they'd reach a, a period in the 1800s afterwards where they'd have a, uh, what they thought was a, 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 an increase in population, too many idle people. Uh, the, the machines were becoming more efficient in factories. Less hands would be necessary. Uh, and even child labor might eventually be unnecessary one day. And they were trying to think of all these ways, and they had meetings, national meetings, of the wealthy elites, and they published many books about it at the time. You won't find them in your libraries today. Of how to dispose of the excess populations and still hold on to their system and power without revolutions. Fascinating study. And see, that's where guys like Thomas Malthus came to the fore, then Charles Darwin to back it up and give authority to their, their theory of survival of the fittest, which also meant the defeat of the unfittest, the least fit, and the extinguishing of them. It, it isn't changing. It hasn't changed yet. It's still on the go as we work and buy and entertain ourselves and stop... Uh, having offspring, the ones who still can, that is, because people are becoming sterile faster. The sperm count has dropped like a rocket since the, the early 50s. And the average male in the West at 30 is has only 25% or 30% sperm um, count, live sperm count, as opposed to what they had in 1950s levels. Again, no reason given for this, but it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out that it, it all began with the increase of, and step-up of the inoculation programs from the 1950s onwards. Women are affected in a different way because they come down primarily with the chronic fatigue, although they also are given things which attack the ovaries. Uh, that's very, very common today. Again, science at the, the bottom level is just totally baffled as to why this is all happening. And for years, women were told the same old thing. And because the doctors were trained in universities, to to they'd the, the, start meeting lots of women coming in with these strange, weird problems that weren't on the books. And if they weren't on the books, then it had to be in their heads. So women were coming in with... Uh, all kinds of maladies, primarily fatigue syndromes, 
and the doctors would say, they're there, it's stress, dear, it's stress, it's in your head. Things aren't going well at home, are they? Well, if you're in pain, if you don't have the energy, but you have to get through the day, you will be stressed out. That's what pain does to you. Um, that's what lethargy does to you. You still have the same amount of things to do, and you don't have the energy to do them. You do become stressed out. And that's where they came up with the magic, the Valiums and Libriums, back in the 50s, and gave them out like candy. I think it was the 1970s, mid-70s, uh, the, the British Medical Journal said that at that time, uh, close to 70% of all women under the age of 50 were on one or the other of these particular group of drugs. It was all in their heads, you see. Yeah. And at that time, too, the big companies, they put out Valium. And they kept this up for 30 years, this big lie. They said it was non-addictive. It was the safest thing on earth, like sugar. Actually safer than sugar. And yet, doctors in emergency rooms, who again had double think, because they'd all been trained that it was non-addictive too, we're seeing people coming in with convulsions as they were getting withdrawal from long-term use. Now, it didn't even have to be high doses. They could even stick to the doses. Different people are affected differently. And medicine tries to treat everybody as though they're one, one uh, person. It's impossible. We, are di we have different metabolisms and everything. But they were having these convulsions. People were becoming addicted to them. And that's, the, that's the, the power of propaganda and repetition and indoctrination of general practitioners. They refuse to believe it, even though they could even see it. It had to be something else causing it. So for 30 years, they kept dishing all these things out like candy. And people were going downhill. The sorcerer's apprentice, eh? And who's he practicing on? And who's his boss? Today, as I say, sciences are constantly bombarding us with new theories on everything. And we've been trained again since about the 1950s onwards not to listen to anyone unless they are an expert. Lord Bertrand Russell, who helped set up this system of, of psychological manipulation of mass populations and the impact of science on society, said they would do that. It says, we shall train the public until they, they can't think for themselves. They will have to get an expert's opinion. And that has happened. Back in the, the 60s, Suddenly we had the thalidomide scare. Thalidomide was a drug put out. Initially, supposedly, it had been, it had been stumbled across, as they do. This is what that was to they stumble across a use for something that they've, they've combined different compounds together. They, they said it was good for, for elderly people who had urinary retention problems and so on. It would help tone up the bladder and then 
we started giving it to pregnant women. And we ended up with masses of children born missing arms and legs. Incredible outcome. And, and even then, the battles for compensation and for guilt took years and years and years. And thalidomide was stopped. And about four years ago, it came back again under a different name. But now they're, they're only going to pres- prescribe it in specific cases where there's a chance of breast cancer developing. They never give up, do they? They, they never give up. And they know the public have a short memory. Most people in their entire life have a hard time remembering things they heard 20, 30 years ago. Even 10. Now it's down to about 2. They're losing their ability to retain information and compare with things that are happening today. That's a common thing I hear all the time from people who phone me. Short-term memory is going, as well as long-term. Why? Is it just that the overabundance of useless data that's spilled over to us every day through electronic media? Or are there other factors at work? But people are losing memory. And when you don't have memory, the same tricks can be pulled faster and faster and repeated oftener and oftener. Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse Nothing in my purse And chuckles when the preacher said For better or for worse How lovely it was Thanks for the memory Of Schubert's serenade Little things of jade And traffic jams and anagrams And bills we never paid How lovely it was We who could laugh over big things Were parted by only a slight thing I wonder if we did the right thing So this process It's just a religion, you see. It's taken over from another previous religion. In previous religions, monks used to line up and be bled every week to get rid of their bad humors. So there wasn't much fun being there. And today, we go through all of these ridiculous theories and with much speaking of many mouths to tell us how good it is for us, whatever it happens to be. It's like the, the the fluoride. The fluoride itself is a byproduct of the aluminum industry, or aluminium, as they say, in Britain. And they knew at the beginning of the 1900s, uh, during a, the, the testing of the process of creating uh, aluminium, that had so much waste, the aluminum oxide waste, and they wondered what they could do with this stuff. But they did find through spillage into, in certain places in Europe 
into streams and rivers that when people drank the stuff they become very docile and pliable and and easily managed that was the first effect that they noticed with it well how do you get the people generally to take it and make a profit on it well you put the waste in their toothpaste and you tell them it's good for them that's what they did and even the man who led the charge for for this to be done throughout Canada's drinking water supply is, is now fighting back like crazy because he, he knows himself he was misled. He didn't have all the details. He swallowed the pseudoscience at the time. And this stuff causes brittle bones as well. And you can even see the small specks of the ultra-white particles in the teeth itself in the enamel. And the Bronfmans were in the biggest families with Alcan who made the schmucks buy the stuff because I told you this waste stuff was good for you. That's not too bad, is it? Dumb the people down, make a massive profit at the same time, and you'll be hailed as a hero of, of uh, the medical profession. All, all, all nonsense, utter rubbish, and massive advertising campaigns with psychologically created ditties that you would you would hum and sing and whistle. They were better than the average songs of the time, all these little things, you know, to do with toothpaste and so on, of what it does for you. And even on the toothpaste, I'll tell you, don't don't take any more than the recommended dose. Well, it's in your water supply as well if you live in the cities. It's in the toothpaste too. So you are, because it's, it's, it's actually put down as a poison. Poison is good for you. Poison is good. There's double think right away to hold the two opposing opinions in your head about the same thing. Double think, George Orwell. This poison is good for you. Even in Nazi Germany, they put it in war supplies of the conquered peoples because it made them more placid and docile. Who would benefit from that? Placid and docile populations. And it's interesting to watch the the panic that goes on, at least it appears to be panic, amongst this great medical profession, uh, that's propagandized through fiction and all these TV shows and hospitals and dramas. To, me, to, to Remember that all that you see on television is propaganda, especially the fiction, to create an image of something that's entirely different. And a few years ago, ago, when the SARS hit Toronto, interesting name, none of the procedures that had been talked about and held up, even at the United Nations, the World Health Organization, none of them were really followed because they knew where it was all coming from. They knew it was coming from China. They didn't stop any aircraft from coming into Canada why if you were truly truly afraid this is a brand new type of killer flu and and that's what the hype was all about this is a killer flu and, and it's here it's come and we saw all the doctors every day on television it was like an update report during world war ii the blitz the same faces telling you the latest info or disinfo 
of how they were handling things and all the staff were to wear masks and do barrier nursing and and stuff like that and but they kept the aircraft coming. Now you wouldn't do that, would you? If you believed your own propaganda, why would you allow the aircraft to continue as as usual? And then they came up with a beauty uh, where you had this all oh, spending massive amount of money to to for thermal detectors that would, tr- that would see the images of people and detect who had a fever. Now that might be fine for for people who don't understand anything at all about infections and medicine. But even those in the know were pushing all of this stuff as it was uh, a saviour, not a scientific saviour. They could actually see the heat around a person's head if they had a fever. Well, when you catch an infection, you have a prodromal period. And it can be up to two weeks or longer in some people before any symptoms show at all, including temperature elevation. So they were selling the public schmuck, nonsense, rubbish, lies, expensive lies because the public had to pay for all this stuff, all this equipment that was technically useless. And sure enough, only about six months ago, in one of the many little blurbs you'll get on the TV, they admitted that. A quick admission, then it was over and back onto sports. Most people will never remember it. And this is the kind of stuff we get fed on a daily basis by experts. Voodoo. They're telling us voodoo. Actually, there's probably more legitimacy in voodoo. And I might do a program on that, too. But they have the public so trained to react to the expert's voice that we just jump to it and panic when they tell us to panic. And I think the SARS was really... And, and, and more folk died of the ordinary flu during the, the SARS outbreak than, you know. But I think the SARS was a big test. And also to see how the public would react. Would they obey authorities? Would they do what they were told? Was it creating the kind of panic that they hoped to generate? And every year again, with this flu season, I'm just waiting for it happening this year. It will happen. You always hear in Ontario where the flu first breaks out. And it will be an old folks' home for the elderly, as it is every year. And it's transmitted into the population around by visitors to the home. And in those homes, they have to take the flu shot. They're the first to get it. Now, two and two equals, uh, what is it again? Um, Let me think. This happens every year. And two years ago, it broke out an old folks' home outside of Barrie, Ontario. And they talked to the supervisor of the home, who had their basic medical training. And this is just to show you that they're as brainwashed, you see, as the general population. Her answer to it, even though they'd all had their flu shots, was more flu shots. 
because she hadn't figured it out herself. She hadn't figured it out. So to wind up tonight, I'm going to give a little story for the men, mainly, to make you squirm. And this is from the same book, Acres of Skin, on page 150. The best known and fully researched examples of prisoner irradiation are the twin cases of Oregon and Washington. They ran from 63 to 73 under the sponsorship of the Atomic Energy Commission. You know, the good guys that go hunting for bombs all over the planet. These experiments, which were designed to measure the effects of radiation on the male reproductive system and sperm cell development, grew out of concern about radiation hazards to astronauts in the nascent space program. Ah, ha, 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 sure. The experiments were directed by Dr. Carol G. Heller, a preeminent researcher and the leading endocrinologist of his day, and Dr. Heller's protege, Dr. C. Alvin Paulson. In the Oregon case, Dr. Heller designed a study to test the effects of radiation on the somatic and uh, germinal cells of the testes, the doses of radiation that would produce changes or induce damage in spermatogenic cells, the amount of time it would take for cell production to recover, and the effects of radiation on hormone excretion. In the experiment, the test subject sat with its scrotum in a small plastic box filled with warm water, The box was bracketed by sets of X-ray tubes for uniform irradiation. Every subject was required to get a vasectomy, usually at the conclusion of the study, in order to ensure that the chromosomal damage would not lead to fathering genetically damaged children. During the decade that Dr. Heller conducted his study, he received a government grant totaling $1.1 million. A test subject was paid $5 a month Ten for each testicular biopsy, plus $100 when he was vasectomized at the end of the program, sterilized. Subjects endured, skir- uh, endured skin burns, pain from biopsies, testicular inflammation, and bleeding into the scrotum from the biopsies. Interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church prohibited Catholics <laughs> from, pro- <laughs> from participating in the experiment not because the tests were dangerous, but because the church objected to its members masturbating to provide semen samples. You see, in the Catholic Church, um, having intercourse, you see, sexual intercourse, is not a sin. It's only a sin if you enjoy it. By 1973, after 67 inmates had been irradiated, the rapidly changing research ethics environment caused the termination of the Oregon experiment. Three years later, a number of test subjects filed lawsuits alleging poorly supervised research and lack of informed consent. Very important part, you see, lack of informed consent. In 1979, the suits were settled out of court. Nine prisoners shared $2,215 in damages. (laughs) Wow. Uh, That's not including all those who died from radiation and chromosomal changes and cancers. The Atomic Energy Commission selected Dr. Paulson to initiate a half-million-dollar research program in 63 after several workers at the Hanford Nuclear Plant in Washington State were accidentally exposed to radiation. 
Paulson said his goal was to establish a reasonably safe dose of ionizing radiation to the testes. Now, they knew already, you see, there was no safe dose. So, what was the real reason for this, you see? It must, must, must be much, much bigger than what they're telling us here, because they knew that there's no safe dose. This was terminated in 1970 after questions arose over the issues of informed consent and the non-therapeutic nature of the studies and legal liability. Years after their participation in these dangerous experiments, many former prisoners remain angry about how their ignorance and lack of sophistication were used against them. We can be blamed for being duped, said Robert Garrison in a 1994 newspaper interview. Nobody ever sat us down and explained what the tests were all about and what the complications were. I can't even get a doctor to diagnose my problems, let alone give me treatment for them. I'm a human being, too. These were prisoners. Prisoners. No voice. Many of them were black men. Most of them had very little education. And yet still, they were duped because they had the same amount of indoctrination to obey experts, and experts know what they're doing, and experts can be counted on and trusted. But what were they really doing these experiments for? Because Radiation is a fantastic way to sterilize populations. And you only need a small amount of long-term exposure. If you're taking in metallic substances, or say if they were spraying it from the air, you could also make them radioactive, minutely so. Just a little bit above what nature gives us. That's all it would take to fulfill its purpose. So for now, may your God go with you. That's why the chinks do it, Japs do it, up in Lapland little laps do it, well let's do it. Let's fall in love In Spain the best Upper sets Do it Lithuanians and Let's do it Well let's do it Let's fall in love Electric eels I might add Do it Though it shocks them I know why ask if Chad's do it? Way to bring me Chad Rowe. Some Argentines without means do it. People say in Boston even beans do it. Well, let's do it. Let's fall in
not to mention the fin. Folks in Siam do think of Siamese twins. The birds do it 